0: This is episode 52 with professor of psychology, researcher and author Todd Pashton. And today we're turning the table and talking about the benefits of having negative emotions.
1: We're also not giving up on kindness. We're really just being what, you know, what I call, you know, psychologically flexible. We we can be kind, we can be angry, we can be forgiving, we can be vengeful, we can be narcissistic, We can be selfless and being whole is about you are every end and possibility of the personality spectrum and stop um, discarding, removing, and not activating some of these tools that are are part of who you are because you don't like the discomfort that it brings.
0: Hey moms, are you tired of being tired or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Hi, welcome to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast. Today we're talking about the positive side of your dark side. In other words, those negative emotions that we try to avoid and we try to avoid our kids having or using them in their social interactions. I want to start with a quote from today's author. He says, abandon the notion of labeling emotions as exclusively positive or negative and instead target what is healthy or unhealthy in a situation. I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a couple months and so happy that he is finally on today to talk about one of my favorite books, which is The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. We all know the benefits of having positive emotions. We are living in a culture of positivity, mindfulness, happiness, trying to find any little way possible to be happier. And and today I want to turn the table on this and look at the other side. I want to start with sharing a little study that is in in Todd's book. So maybe you've heard this study done before. It was done to see how much participants would value certain emotions or avoid other emotions. So to sum it up, people would give more dollar value to avoid a negative emotion than to get more positive emotions. And the ultimate exception was that nothing was ever more worthy than the emotion, the feeling of love that was the only positive emotion that won over the negative ones. Forget calm, peace, happiness, excitement. Nope, people would pay more to avoid having a negative emotion. So, Today's conversation is going to talk about why negative emotions should not be avoided at all costs because they are useful, beneficial, and healthy in certain situations. About, of course, how that applies to your parenting ways and also the three most dreaded negative emotions that is anger, guilt and shame, and of course, anxiety. Basically, you'll leave this conversation having learned what purpose does negative emotions serve and why you shouldn't avoid them at all costs. If it can help you in any way possible, then it's all worth it. So who is today's guest? Todd father of three girls. He's Dr. Cashton, professor of psychology at George Mason University in Virginia in the United States. He's a psychologist, researcher, author, speaker, has a PhD in clinical psychology, has been 20 years in leading the well-being lab to study the meaning and purpose in life, resilience, and uncertainty management, and has received awards in his field of research and contribution. He's done TEDx Talk. He's helped organization apply the latest findings in behavioral science, has authored four books such as Curious, The Power of Negative Emotions, Mindfulness Acceptance, Positive Psychology, and of course, The Upside of Your Dark Side. His research has been featured in hundreds of media outlets, including multiple articles in the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, New York Times, Washington Post, CBC Radio, Oprah, magazine. He's published over 200 peer-reviewed journals, articles, and I'll put a link. As usual, go to citruslove.com episode 52 and go to connect with our guests. What I love about him is Everything he researches in his articles, he always has a a different take to what the majority of people and the media is putting out there. And we're continuously growing as people, as adults, as parents, as women, as human beings. And we cannot grow when we keep seeking the same information over and over again. That's why I'm really excited to share with you this conversation because it's not very often you hear. Those negative emotions, well, they're not actually all that negative, and you actually need them to survive and to succeed and to live a healthier, happier life. So I'll just end it with that. Uh, let's get to it and listen to this conversation. Welcome, Todd, to the Citrus Love Podcast. Thank you again for taking the time to have this conversation to help mothers on their journey, and we'll be talking about. Your new book? Your new book. I mean, no, it's been out a couple of years now, but one of my favorite books, I have to say, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. Thank you again.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I love to, anytime I can... Offer some science and tips for parents, because I wish someone told me what the heck is going on with raising kids.
0: (laughs) I think every parent wished that um, after they had their first child. I know I did. I want to start with something I learned about you that related to COVID because we're still in it, unfortunately, and I just want to give you my condolences because you lost your father-in-law to COVID recently. I saw you wrote that he was a great role model for you for how to be a father. If you're okay to talk just briefly about it, why was he a great role model to you?
1: Um, well, thank you for the condolences. And, uh, and I'm sure some of your listeners have also lost someone to COVID or feared that their child or family member or friend is lost to COVID. Um, I'm glad you brought it up because I think this is really relevant to this, this, the concept of this book of the upside of the dark side of our personality. I mean, he was, I mean, essentially I lost, you know, I lost my mother when I was 12. My father walked out when I was two with a bitter divorce. I obviously don't remember 24 months of age, how that went down. Mm -hmm. Um, So for 17 years, my father-in-law, I think a lot of people have this experience, essentially became my dad for, as an adult at 17 years. And, um, and I think it's challenging as a male with very narrow emotional scripts of how to behave in the world. Uh, without a male role model who teaches you that it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be anxious, it's okay to be worried, how to be assertive and express yourself clearly without being aggressive and trying to get into a fight with people. And my father-in-law was, you know, was a great model of this. I mean, if I said something that um, he thought was disrespectful to someone who worked at 7-Eleven, a cashier or um, a waitress, I asked too many questions, um, you know, he would grab me by the by the leg and Whisper in my ear and said, Todd, you know what? This is this is pretty bizarre. The question is, do you want someone to spit in your food or do you want to get the the free dessert because you're so nice, friendly, and seductive <laughs> that everybody wants to be around you? So not only is he on my shoulder as a source of wisdom, um, he was the guy that would always, you know, speak out and say kind of when I did things wrong. And I think one of the difficulties of being an adult is There's this assumption that because we aged into being emotionally intelligent and wise and we've got this figured out and most of us don't and we're just imposters trying to figure out how the hell do you work with drywall and what the hell should you do with your mortgage interest rates as the mortgage interest rates drop? Should you refinance your house and all the painful things of adulting? And so having role models, I think one of the things I bemoan about the United States culture is we age stratify our relationships where people of the same age spend time together. And we don't spend time with teenagers unless they're in our family. We don't spend time with 70 year olds unless they're in their family. Mm. And Barry was a guy who I I hung out with. We you know we played poker. You know we we drank uh, we drank fine beers on the back of my porch. We smoked cigars. Um, we've gone skiing together. And being around someone who's seventy five, and when you're in your forties, is uh, it's a blessing. And I and I hope everyone doesn't stratify their relationships and spends time with people at different generations because you can learn a lot.
0: That's true. Yeah, and people don't actually uh, talk about this very often. Now that you're mentioning it. They they stick to their groups. Like when you have kids, you say, oh, they'll have more fun with kids their age. And adults, well let's talk with other adults. But that's a, ve- a very good point. Um, lots of mothers listening. I know you have, uh, so you have twin girls, they're 13 year old and an eight year old. So a family of girls and you're a twin yourself, which is kind of cool knowing that you have twins and you're a twin. Was it easier raising twins at first? It must have been such a whew, <laughs> a handful having two the first time.
1: You have to subtract the first three years because the three years, if anyone who has multiples know it's a nightmare, <laughs> you've gone to, it is impossible to have synchronization of who's upset and who needs to be fed and who's deprived of sleep, <laughs> who needs a nap. The best thing I ever received, I don't remember if I found it or someone suggested to me, it was um, it's basically you strap on these um these little plush U-shaped pillows around the kid's neck. It sounds like I'm torturing my kids in an Iron Maiden. And then you can, it holds the bottles inside those. And so when my wife was sleeping during the first couple of years, I would sleep deprived, um, shove one of these U-shaped pillows around their neck, um, (laughs) have them feed from the bottle as if like a living creature was actually, who had breasts was feeding them. And I would try to take a nap in any situation you name the closet, the small (laughs) two foot by two foot space, I could crawl into some type of uh, fetus position and fall asleep almost anywhere their first two years. After (laughs) that, it's been a a blessing because having two different personalities with two different jagged profiles of personality traits, um, one's super hyper social, one is super athletic, one's great at like, has bodily catesthetic intelligence and can do dance moves, learn them in 20 seconds from TikTok. The other one um, is like a, a bull in the China shop like me and physically just smashes into things. <laughs> and so it's been, I mean, the entertainment value of having twins once you get past the first two years is uh, a psychologist dream.
0: that thats That's for sure. You say that one of the best ways to spend money is on books. So do you have like this huge library and your daughters have lots of books?
1: Yeah. In in fact, um, my youngest, my eight-year-old over the past, since um, the lockdown of COVID-19, we've been reading from the 1812 Grimm's fairy tales. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean, I don't know if you know about this, but you know, this is like the origin of Rapunzel and Sleeping Beauty and Mm -hmm. Cinderella and- and they're dark and they're dark and sinister and there's lots of blood and yeah, violence. Yeah, I have that book. And what I love about that um, that book is back in the 1800s, there's a good side and a bad side to this. Um, there is an appreciation of just because you're eight years old does not mean that you lack the intellect and the emotional resilience that you can handle a scary, disturbing story, especially if they have a life less in it. And something's happened culturally in the past, you know, around the 1990s, about 30 years, where, you know, you've heard the terms helicopter parenting and Mm -hmm. snowplow parenting and coddling children, where we just assume they're so psychologically weak that we just have to, like, basically provide them as much physical and psychological comfort as possible. And it mimics what the media has done in terms of sanitizing storylines into kind of Disney fairy tales where there's always a happy ending and Mm -hmm. sanitizing books where, um, you know, maybe there's a bullying incident, but then the bully becomes friend with the person who was their victim at the end of the story. And I think there's something that's more pragmatic about giving kids an operating system that you know, you're going to be exp- full of challenges, you're going to be lonely, you're going to be picked on, you're going to be um, pushed into a situation where people are treating people inappropriately, and you're going to be pushed to do the same. Um, you are going to be uh mistreated, um, overcharged. You're gonna be ignored and neglected both as a customer, as a friend, as a romantic partner. And the more that we could train our kids with stories and anecdotes, you know, from fictional books, nonfiction books, and from our own lives, um, the more that they will be prepared to deal with life's adversity. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book is it's not that I want people to experience more anger, sadness, guilt, envy, and wrath, and you know, and sloth, it's, and all the deadly sins. It's that I want people to realize is that for you to be whole and for you to train your kids to be whole, like holistically accepting of exactly what they bring to the world, what's their strengths and weaknesses, we have to prepare them. And the grim stories do that, especially if you talk to your kids about the the darker pieces of it.
0: What have you done specifically, apart from books, or said to your daughters to help them be okay with those bad emotions or darker emotions?
1: There's a whole bunch of tools and strategies. So let me give the universal caveat is... I did not write parenting handbook. I did not get the magical parenting handbook that is lit somewhere in Stonehenge that <laughs> we're supposed to travel to. And there's, there's one handbook that tells us how to do this right. My kids are not yet in college and adults. So um, everything I'm doing might turn my kids into into psychopharmacological messes <laughs> that will be using therapists for years. So let that caveat be out. Um, I I do a lot and uh, and I and you know, I'm kind of known in my neighborhood for doing things a little bit differently. Let me give you an example of a story that um, just to kind of make it not seem like I am um, an expert of anything, I'm gonna give you a story that has um, disturbed my neighbors even to this day. Okay. <laughs> just to give you an idea of this. so just so so, just as a warning, um some people are gonna dislike me from this story. Um, this actually happened. When my twins were around nine, we live about a few blocks, like six blocks, from their school, their elementary school. So they were able to walk home. And many, you know, like my, I was an '80s kid. You know, I was a latchkey kid. I was raised by a single mom, so I was used to kind of, you know, going home by myself. And back then, it was no big deal. Now mm-hmm. we're we're hyper vigilant. Ironically, if you look sociologically at the data, kidnapping has gone down, assaults have gone down, murders have gone down. The world is a lot less dangerous. But we have twenty four seven news that likes to show what's gonna outrage you and what looks disturbing. So there's a representativeness bias that makes you think the world's more dangerous than ever when in in, in actuality, it has never been safer and mm-hmm. that includes the internet. So I realized my my two girls were getting a little bit too overconfident and they hadn't been exposed to that many difficulties. Um, As they were coming home from school, super proud, skipping, just kind of open the door, bring their friends, no big deal. Not that they're having wild parties at eight years old. A wild party is basically, you know, them getting two scoops of ice cream and root beer. That's a wild party at eight. (laughs) And so I decided they needed to learn um, that dangerous people could follow them home from school and they may not be situationally aware because they're listening to music, they're talking really loudly, and they're not hearing footsteps, that sort of thing. So I did what almost every parent who's listening probably did. Um, I put on a butcher's apron. I put on a rubber pig's mask. Um, I grabbed a knife. And while my kids were playing in the cul-de-sac, I went out my back door and, and I put, oh, of course, and I took a, a piece of steak and rubbed the uh, the meat all over the butcher's apron and my clothes to make it look like there was blood. And uh, this was not Halloween. <laughs> this was in the middle of the spring. And I came outside, screened my daughter's names. All the kids in the street looked at me and sprinted into their houses and slammed the doors, and including my kids, screaming hysterically. And they ran inside the house. And I came to the house, I opened the front door, they screamed and I pulled up the mask. And they're like, dad, why do you always do this stuff all the time? And I, and I explained exactly what I just said of, of like, listen, you guys are assumed that the, everything in the world is gonna go smoothly. And so you need to practice opening the door to the house if someone uh, you know, uh, malevolent is is behind you or ambiguous is behind you. So we practiced. So basically, I would stand across from the street with my butcher's knife and my pig mask. Uh, my neighbors were watching this peeking through their windows with their windows, just, just the slight little eyes underneath their the the, uh, the window shades they were watching. And I would give them 60 seconds to run across the street and open the door before I got there or else they were dead. And we practiced this over and over. They got amazing at this. So then I had them wear um, ski gloves to make it harder just to practice what it would be like in the winter time. Then another version, I squirted them with water guns as they were trying to run to the door and open the door. And by the time they were done over the course of a couple days of training, uh, this is their buds, Navy SEALs training. My kids are like it, like the top one percent of humanity for opening the door uh, as quickly as humanly possible and locking it. And it was playful. We had fun with it, and it was just like a realization of you need to be fully cognizant of your surroundings, especially as a woman in the world, especially if you're not living or traveling in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, And just to be, you know, just, you know, just, it goes along with the teenage advice, which is have your kids jog, but make sure one headphone, one earbud is not in their ear. Mm. And so it's, you know, and these are the, these, you know, there's tons of these little experiments that I do with the kids and it, and it resonates with them.
0: Yeah. Talking about that, there was something in your book that I wanted to share. You say that perhaps you'll feel better knowing that we've all behaved badly for most of our lives. We know this from research on the honesty rates of children. For every additional IQ point, the children were slightly more likely to lie. You say negativity is our birthright like it's essential for survival. Talk about how this negativity, like it's not always seen as so black and white.
1: Yeah, and since since the book came out, there have been other research showing is that when you think about who's the most hyper-partisan politically and unable to be intellectually humble enough to realize that someone with a different vantage point and value system might have something to offer That you don't know. Someone from a different culture, someone from Mexico, Guatemala, from Finland, you know, these countries might have, and people from these countries might have ideas that are better than our ethnocentric idea that what we do in the United States is the best of all worlds for governance and interacting with each other. What you find is the more analytically intelligent people are, the less likely they are to absorb information that disconfirms their beliefs. They're more likely to seek out confirmation from their from media from people, from information. And this is a bad thing for adults and it's a bad thing for kids. Um, You want kids to learn multiple perspectives. Um, and, And in the research that you described is that the more intelligent you are, you can weave better stories. So you can seem incredibly honest because you can just tell a good yarn about why something is different than what's happening in reality. So just to clarify the important lesson there, it's so it's not that lying is good. This, this, you won't find that in the book. Mm-hmm. It's more of that what you're seeing from kids that lie is they're trying to save face for themselves or protect their friends. Well, those are two really interesting values, right? One is about feeling a sense of security in a world that's ambiguous and complicated and one is about protecting their loved one. Well, those aren't, I don't want to get rid of either one of those values. Those are fantastic. Mm-hmm. So now it's, it's, so the typical parent response, especially 1950s dad, is I'm going to, you know, do some corporal punishment. I'm going to lock you in the garage. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to make sure you can't see your friends for two weeks. So now you have no social network, which is, which is going to make you bitter. And you have to ask yourself, is the punishment that I'm giving to my child, is it one, how is it helping them become a better person? Two, how is it helping them psychologically? Well, taking them away from their social world for two weeks is not going to make them better at socializing. And then three, is it, how is it helping your relationship with your child? Because as they develop uh, a firmer stance of physical strength and mental agility, Your relationship with them is the foundation of how their expectations for every other person they interact with. So, if they expect anything wrong that they do, they will be punished, ostracized, and isolated. Well, they're not going to have a secure relationship. They're going to be very anxious and ambivalent and even avoidant about expressing themselves in their future friendships and in their future romantic lives. And so, these are the three questions we have to think about when we punish kids. The better way of doing this, and I'm not saying this is easy. Anytime your kid lies, especially about something important and it bothers you, it's not easy. But it's basically it's like, listen, there's a way to do this in the right situation, and it tends to be rare. There are few there are a few, very few situations where lying is okay. So give the most concrete example. Listen, if if somebody comes by with your after-school special about child, tra- you know, sex trafficking. They come by in, the, in a brown van with a cute dog and they try to seduce your kid and get them to go in the van. One of the things you say, you have your kids say, it's like, listen, I can't go in there. My parents are waiting for me. They're around the block. They're lying. Good. They're trying to escape a child, a child predator. That's awesome. If it ends up being that um, they come at the, after, at the end of the school day, back in the day when humans interacted with humans in a classroom and a kid tells them, give me all your money. And they say I don't have any money, and and they have dollar bills stuffed in their socks under Mm -hmm. their shoes. Is that okay to lie for doing that? I would say yes. That happens there. It's a self-preservation mechanism that's here, and then you can give examples of when it's not okay. If it ends up being that one of their friends has is a bruise because their dad hit them, and then they lie to you when you ask. Listen, is your is your is your friend okay? And they say, Oh yeah, yeah, they're fine because their friend told them to lie. Well, now they're, now they're going against one of the core things they care about in their life, the, the safety and security and well-being of their friends. And so th- thinking about this as a, what values are you living by is a good way to train your kids about um, honesty and lying.
0: One of the things that you hear all the time and you even say, call it a supreme virtue in the book is kindness. And I mean, as a parent, the one thing, one of the top things we say to our kids is be kind. I just want my kids to be kind, constantly mentioning this, whatever you do, as long as you're kind, because you always have a different take on it. So what's something you caution parents about saying this all the time or really valuing kindness above all? Because as we know and you mentioned before, not everyone's kind. You'll be faced with with situations where you need to be unkind or unpleasant in situations. So how should we really be speaking about kindness or thinking about kindness
1: so i'm going to give you a couple a concrete example of uh of how i trained my kid and what they did in the situation i think a better way than playing with kindness is to play with there's uh you could think of this as one single continuum at one end is being passive and letting people walk over you and one end is being aggressive and then um Dominating in an overbearing way to make sure you always get your way, and in the middle, you know Aristotle's golden mean. For Aristotle, every virtue lies between two vices. So passivity is a vice. Um, that kind of uh, dominant, obsessive dominance is a vice, and then you have assertiveness. What? How can I behave in a way that gets the best possible outcome in a situation? If we train our kids over-train our kids to be nice. We're basically setting them up for passivity and aggressivity. Now, this is particularly important for you know I'm raising three daughters, so I am very hyper aware that uh, right around the corner is going to be dating time, and um, <laughs> and I'm not and I'm not one of those dads that's like, oh, I'm gonna you know build up huge everything. biceps and carry two guns, and you're not going <laughs> to be able to talk to boys until you're 18. I actually hold a view of like, listen, I want intel. I want intelligence, so I want my kids to be able to be comfortable enough to tell me about when they're dating, because I've told them many times at 13, the most dangerous weapon you're going to be faced with in your entire life is not a gun, is not a knife, it's some guy or gal, whoever they decide I'm dating, whoever you date, is the biggest weapon you'll be faced against that you're gonna to have to try to protect yourself from. Because domestic violence is far more frequent as a, as a as an epidemic than any other form of physical violence that's out there. And so I tra- I want the information. If you act as you don't want your kids ever to date, they'll just date behind your back and you won't be exposed to all of the cues of whether they're in a healthy relationship or an unhealthy relationship. So I train my kids to basically to speak their piece, Whenever they feel it's relevant, and they will learn to get more effective and precise in what they want to say as they do it. And every time we deconstruct it. So one of my daughters, when she was in sixth grade, the music teacher came, pulled every all the kids out of class, and the music teacher was upset because a lot of people who had taken um, orchestra or band weren't signing up again, and so she was really pushing them, like, listen. You guys, I want you to sign off just to let you know, um, I look bad with so many people dropping out of orchestra, she, orchestra and band. She told this to the six year, sixth graders as if like, you know, this is a contingency clause in her contract, which has nothing to do with a bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. My daughter, I was so proud of her. She came home. So she got in trouble. The vice principal called me up. I was, I'm doing this out of order. i was so proud of her. She basically said to the teacher, and probably not in the best way, I wasn't there, so I don't know if she raised her voice, had a pissy face, <laughs> um, was confrontational. I don't know. Who cares? She's, six, she's a sixth grader. Actually, she was in fifth grade. And she told the teacher, I was told, we were told that you're not allowed to try to persuade and push kids to take orchestra and band and we're, it's supposed to be our decision. The teacher was pissed at this. And basically said, you're speaking out of turn. You're trying to convince other kids not to join it. Um, You're being disrespectful. Took Mm -hmm. her to the principal's office. I get called up. I told the vice principal, you know what? I know you want me to be upset. I am so happy that my daughter did that. Now, one, she probably didn't say it right, but I don't actually care. The teacher's role in that moment is to say, hey, if you said it this way, I would have said, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't have done that. But the way you said it made me defensive, and that's why I lashed out at you. But that's not what the teacher did. But my kid was in the early phase of being assertive. She recognized something was wrong about what the teacher did. She didn't have the articula- articulation ability to kind of nail down exactly what was, what was wrong and what she should have done differently. And so they had um, you know, problematic interaction. And I, and, I, and I wanna say this, because I want this for every parent to potentially um, abide by the same principle. I have three daughters. I know what happens in high school. I know what happens on school buses. You've got, you know, high school boys being goofballs, you know, pulling girls' bra straps, um, poking at their leg, um, pointing at their, you know, their changing bodies. I told my kids, I said, listen, if someone touches you, even on the finger, on your skin of your neck, your back, your arm, you tell them to, to take their hands off you. If they touch you a second time and it's not hard, remind them again, I told you, I don't want you to, at the third time, you have all rights and privileges to do whatever the heck you want in that situation. Mm. Punch them in the face, smash them in the head with the book, try not to kill them. <laughs> um, but, but you've told them now twice, and they yeah. punch you a third time. And I will always come in and say, listen, to a principal, do you want my girls to be sexually assaulted? Do you want them to be raped? Because if I was to let a kid touch their body. It's their body. It doesn't matter what body, but it could be their elbow. Parents should be telling their kids not to touch people's physical bodies. That's their that is a uh, an island that is off limits, and I will train my kids not to accept it. And so that's being um using frustration and anger and assertiveness and it's a deviation from kindness because basically is you want to train your kids to know to develop their own systematic paradigm of what is going to be acceptable to them or what is going to be unacceptable. And you don't want peer pressure to be the deciding force. You want them to be able to hold on to that system of what's acceptable and unacceptable, even when other kids or adults are saying, come on, they're just playing, they're just being goofballs, they didn't mean it. You don't want them to to abide by the pressure. You want them to abide by the moral compass that's inside them. And part of our role is to make sure that we not create the moral compass for them, help them cultivate in themselves what's that moral compass. And that's deviations from kindness a good portion of the time.
0: I love that. And thank you for sharing that because you rarely hear, especially our parents say that out loud. And I mean, for myself, I had a a girl in school who bullied me and but it was always I was always told no just be nice ignore them and that seemed to be the thing ignore ignore and they'll just stop parents say their kids were bullied and it's always the the internal conflict of Hitting is bad. Violence is bad. You know, being a jerk or saying mean things is bad. So how can you teach them right while letting them defend themselves? So this is a great example for parents to hear because we don't hear this side very often.
1: Yeah. And 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 thank you for saying that because I was taught exactly the same way as you by teachers and by adults and by mm-hmm. my mother, which was, listen, just ignore it. It's going to go away. We really, as a society, we glamorize stoicism, right? We glamorize the ability to have, I'm going to have no reaction whatsoever. You know, for example, like myself and my kids, we have lots of birthmarks. Now we can call them moles if we're feeling like self-deprecatory, or we can call them beauty marks if we want to feel really um, self-loving. They're mm-hmm. the same thing. They're, they're gross brown things all over <laughs> our bodies. And um, and I was uh, and I got picked on a lot. I got called a chocolate chip cookie, and and my kids are all worried about it as well. And we really glamorize of just ignore it, and it always got under my skin. And and I developed you know body dysmorphic issues because of you know I never took off my shirt when I was young because of these you know moles and hair coming out of them. We glamorize that, and we really stigmatize um, sticking up for ourselves, even if it requires a level of. Uh, extreme anger and righteous indignation. We really stigmatize that. And what I want to do is really, um, really set the tone for, we want our kids to be agile enough to have a number of psychological tools in their arsenal to handle difficult situations and to not prematurely rule out coping mechanisms. And sometimes, you know, I'm going to be honest, sometimes, um Violence is necessary. I mean, you know, I grew up in a tough neighborhood, a time when um, people would settle, boys would settle their problems um, with fists. And I'm not saying using weapons, but sometimes, you know, we have to, we have to keep on the table that there's only so many times you can get pushed. If you if you tell people to hold it in, that's where you end up with the Columbine situation. You know, none of this is is good territory. But this is this is about being pragmatic in a world where there are mean people in a world where there is ambiguity, in a world where there um, there is volatility, and a world where you, know, you, you can hold two perspectives simultaneously. You can be empathetic for a bullying kid that they did not have loving, compassionate parents, and they probably had a tough upbringing, and simultaneously protect yourself. You can hold both of those perspectives at the same time. And I think the ability to Transcend these dichotomies allows our kids to be uh, to have a little bit more wisdom as they go through the world, and it's got to start with us. They have to see us standing up for ourselves. Mm-hmm. When you know, when we see that we've been overcharged, and go back to the to a manager and show them the receipt, and they say, "Nah, I'm sorry, that's not the case." You just you taking stand and saying, "Well, you know, I want to see your supervisor." Your tr- your kids are watching. Mm-hmm. They're watching like, oh, you're not helpless. Oh, you do have options. Oh, there are multiple steps you can take and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't and you can't control everything but you but try to control as many things as you can in a situation.
0: Mhm. I love it. Your book it was like so good, so good. It's I've read it twice now and Out there, there's a lot of focus on happiness, on mindfulness, on visualizing where you want to go and all the pretty things. And you write about we are whole when we use both our negative and our good emotions that we were given both for a reason. We shouldn't just disregard one because it doesn't feel as great. And how using both, you can have a healthier, happier life and more successful life when you're using both. But you say it all goes back to the context. Let's talk about the three most dreaded emotions to get specific. You say it's anger, guilt and shame and anxiety. Let's talk about anger first, because for that, you say that context matters and anger is selectively useful as a performance enhancement. And as parents, we often use anger <laughs> to get our kids to do things. So, talk about anger and how. What is the right way to use anger? Because it's not always bad.
1: No, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, think about where we're in right now. We have, we have three wacky societal trends happening simultaneously. We got COVID nineteen. We have a civil rights revolution redux, and we have. Uh, a presidential election which is going to be mayhem um, no matter what happens. What I always say is civil rights changes do not happen without righteous indignation. Righteous indignation is is this is a a higher grade level of anger which is it motivates you to set clear boundaries. Like you are disrupting the boundaries of where my well-being starts and your decisions about how I should behave and there's mm-hmm. an overlap and I'm angry about it, and I want to do something about it. It happens there. A- imagine a world where we could surgically remove and excise people's anger and rights and indignation. You would not have people protecting themselves. You would not have people protecting the disadvantaged. You have people sitting as bystanders, as bad things happen to good people. Um, over, And even if bad things happen to bad people. I mean, the idea that people wouldn't do anything Mm-hmm. anger motivates you anger is an evolutionary derived mechanism that, that arrives because we recognize there are obstacles in the way of things that we care about there are hardships and this is a reminder of let's find the pathways to get through these obstacles you know i was just my um my older girls my twin 13 year olds they're in um advanced travel soccer because they're freaking crazy awesome athletes while well, i was not and <laughs> And I love, the coach uh, met with the parents last night and he said something that really stuck with me. He said, um, I'm not looking for the kid that's the strongest, the most agile and has the best cardiovascular system. I'm looking for kids that can get through hardship. And I loved that because it's, it's I mean, it so resonates with my cultural view of what our job is as, as raising the next generation and also as adults. Like our job is to get through hardship. And anger is the emotion we experience when we're having a hard time doing that or a hardship is being imposed on us. When we are in these situations, if you think about you know, whether it's a protest, think both political sides, right? I mean, it ends up being is that you feel as if your individual freedoms are being stamped upon. You feel as if because of your race, sex, um, gender, sexual orientation is being disrespected and, and is not being treated with dignity, when you're protesting, if you want to be effective, you don't go for calmness and serenity. You know, there, there's the, yeah, there's the Dalai Lama. And yeah, yeah, there's Martin Luther King. And there's Gandhi. But there's a reason that they're outliers. You know, most change happens is because there is enough unrest. And when I say unrest, I'm not talking about looting or rioting. I'm talking about, I am in your face saying, this is the pain I'm experiencing because of this policy that is unnecessary this belief that you hold that is unnecessary this behavior that you're engaging in that is unnecessary because there are alternatives it, it comes from a place of anger and it motivates people now how do you do it effectively is you don't do the looting you don't do the rioting you say with clarity what it is that's wrong how it could be handled differently and that you're willing to negotiate and the fact that you're not at the table is problematic. When you say it from a place of anger, people listen. When multiple people are together as a coalition and are saying something, people listen. It's one of the reasons why the the schools aren't open right now with COVID-19 in my county. It's because of a bunch of parents, a bunch of parents and teachers that with anger formed an alliance and made their voice heard. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I don't even know if they were the majority. I don't think they were. But the Mm -hmm. thing was, anger allowed their voice to be elevated. Now, here's a really important caveat. If you are chronically angry regularly, now think of this in your household when you're raising kids. You're constantly getting upset. There's an endless litany of rules that your kids have to follow. It's not going to work anymore. You have to be selective. You have to let some things go and figure out what's negotiable and what is a non-negotiable. And I think too many parents... Too many teachers, too many bosses, too many societies in terms of governance have too many non-negotiables. And because of that, we don't listen to your anger. So in my household, the first few times that my kids, friends would come over, I would just tell them, listen, I only have a few rules in this house. One, nobody rejects and ostracizes anybody. I don't want to get involved, but just include people as best you can. I don't need the drama in my house. Two, uh, take off your shoes. The last thing I need is like to clean the house after you guys walk through the house. It happens here, and then three is that there should be zero impact that you existed in my house when you leave. My house should look like <laughs> you are not, you never showed up in my house at all, and that's it. Have fun, go scab your knees, get some scars, bleed on something, but I should not know about it. I should not find a blood clot sitting on the you know <laughs> sitting on top of my bicycle seat when you leave there should be zero impact and because mm-hmm. of that kids laugh they have a good time just like you uh, and there's it's not that hard mm-hmm. right but if you if you have a ton of rules and i come down and i'm complaining mm-hmm. and i'm whining and i'm angry well boom i'm gonna be tuned out mm-hmm.
0: yeah talking about anger and i'll give another example um when because when I met my partner he he would tell me, "You're too kind crescent you'll you're gonna people are gonna walk all over you. you're too kind, so he made me practice this, and i I hated it when we had to call like the internet company or the telephone company or whatever to renegotiate some fees or fees that we shouldn't be paying, and I would be nice about it and it would never work. They'd tell me, no, these are that's how we work, blah, 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 da. So that's what you have to pay. So I'd say, like, oh, okay, that's what they said. And <laughs> it never worked. And my partner, he would coach me, literally. He would he would tell me, Okay. You're gonna call again, but this time you're gonna say what I would say, and you have to raise your voice and insist. Like this is da-da-da-da-da. and I was like, but that's so mean! It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and and he was like, you need to be able to do this. I he would make me do all of these calls whenever we needed to rene- renegotiate things or ask for something or and. It made me truly uncomfortable, but I did it. And every time he guided me through it, like, you're going to say it this way. They might say this, but say this. It worked every time. It's crazy. I thought being nice would actually, they'd respect me more and just do it. But no, sometimes you have to raise your voice. You have to get angry a little bit. Like in the book, you say, that's when people tend to focus more on you instead of brushing you aside. And it was remarkable. Like I couldn't understand it. How being nice and kind and calm doesn't always work. Because that's not how I grew up. It was always the opposite. Be kind. And if it doesn't work well, it wasn't meant to be.
1: Well, I'm I'm curious um, how this has uh, affected your relationship with your partner, with him guiding you and then you guys being together after these phone calls.
0: Um. So he is really, he's really the opposite of me in that sense. And it took, took me a couple of years to really understand that just by proof, it's actually by actually doing, trying out what he says, and seeing the result of it. So I just began to trust that maybe how I had learned I, there were beliefs I had to rework as an adult to be able to get through this world. Um, I really had to develop the strength and the resiliency doing that and tapping into more of the negative emotions that I didn't allow myself to do. So, I mean, now I feel more confident and I can do it when necessary. And I can really gauge when is time to push on that maybe anger button a little more to be able to get things done. So yeah, it it's made our relationship much better now because we're more on that same level. But I can tell you that when I go back and visit my family, they don't understand it.
1: Who are you? Who is this? Now you speak up for yourself. I'm glad you said that because a lot of times when, um, particularly when women, mm-hmm. as they become more assertive and they, they're more, they're uh, more disciplined and saying, you know, I'm actually not interested in that. I'd rather do this. And they kind of start expressing their opinions and their preferences and, yeah. um is um it often has a lot of tension in relationships because people grow into a script of, you know, I, I make all the kind of the, the big decisions and then you kind of usually agree with them. And now like, what's, what's this all about that happens there? And I'm glad you're telling this story because it talks about how, you know, we're not done learning even personality-wise no, as an But also like we can renegotiate our relationship dynamic yeah. of long-term parents and uh, long-term partners, long-term parents, and it'll be short-term pain for long-term mm-hmm. improvements.
0: Yeah. You asked about my relationship. I'm able to ask for things that's really important for me, knowing that my partner will disagree. Yeah, And- I can handle the heat in the moment. I can handle it because I'm not afraid. I mean, you choose, pick and choose what's uh, important and you focus on those. So, I mean, your book, it's, it just hits on the things that I've realized and you're using scientific research to really say, it's okay. Like you, we all have a dark side and we can use that side as needed.
1: No, I appreciate that. Uh, but particularly your story for your listeners to hear, because you hit something that's important to say. Because I know there's that there might be more mothers than fathers that are listening to this. Mm-hmm. Is there is a, a narrower acceptable societal bandwidth of emotional behavior for women compared to men, and mm-hmm. that's just it's just a fact. And and I think I'm glad you said what you said because the idea of of like what's what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Someone's going to call you a bitch. Someone's gonna discount you. Um, someone's gonna talk uh, talk smack about you or behind your back. Th- so that's in that's in the con column. In the pro column, they now have to interact with you differently, and you get to be you. You get to have more authenticity and kind of and more bravery and more respect. And part mm-hmm. of the price of changing the the dynamics of the relationships in the workplace or at home or any place else is there is going to be some discord. And there's going to be some dislike and it, it may linger, but you know, you have to imagine the counterfactual world where you don't say anything. And then the, the regret about inaction of not saying what's on our mind over mm-hmm. and over again is far more painful and it lingers and it kills us. And we kind of ruminate about it much more than the regret about action that we wish went better. Mm-hmm. And so I'd strongly suggest of like the research on regret that we should take more calculated risks and say things, even with even knowing that someone we might upset people. And it might actually turn some people off for the long haul. But you know what? We just got a litmus test of realizing, you know what? You're misogynistic. You don't allow a woman to say the same thing that a male does. I can't express my convictions. Well, I just learned that I'm not going to have a strong relationship with you. So thank you for showing your true colors. So that's, mm-hmm. that's okay. And I think we have to be able to accept these trade-offs and look at them as, um, it 's not going to be perfect, and we 're also not giving up on kindness we 're really just being what you know what I call you know psychologically flexible we We can be kind, we can be angry, we can be forgiving, we can be vengeful, we can be narcissistic, we can be selfless, and being whole, which is really the fulcrum of this whole book, is being whole is about you are every end and possibility of the personality spectrum, and stop um, discarding, removing, and not activating some of these tools that are that are part of who you are, because you don't like the discomfort that it brings.
0: Mm-hmm. L- let's talk about the next one, e- about one of the most dreaded emotions, you say guilt and shame. First of all, can you just say in one sentence, what's the difference between both?
1: Sure. Um so guilt is the the distressing feeling you get when you feel that, that something you did caused harm to other people or a system or a culture. And then shame is the distressing feeling you feel is because there's something wrong with you and that's why you upset other people. They're both moral emotion, but the mm-hmm. distinction is really clear is guilt is about like, I'm upset because I shouldn't have said that, you know, that, that came out wrong. Or you might feel guilty just because um, you didn't stand up for somebody. I should have been the person that said, you know what, leave Jess alone. Like you guys, like you gave her enough feedback. You guys are going over the top. And then shame is much more damning. It's like, I'm the type of person that wouldn't stand up for Jess. Like I'm weak. I'm soft. I'm lacking emotional intelligence. I'm a bad friend. And so shame doesn't have really much benefit because when you feel this emotion and blame it on who you are as, a, as an entity, it makes you want to hide from the world. It makes you want to escape. When people have studied um, people who enter the, the jail or prison system, you find that when people feel ashamed about whatever wrongdoing they had, whether it's speeding, whether it's you know snorting cocaine, or whether it's an assault and battery, um, when, when people feel ashamed about their crime, they are more likely when they are released to uh, engage in the same behavior again and go through the revolving door and end up back in jail and prison. When people feel guilty of like, you know what, I should have went for help for my substance abuse problem. I should have held back and the idea of of punching that guy until he died, I I lost control. When you focus on the behavior and you feel upset about it, people are less like, are more likely to repair their lives and end up becoming good upstanding citizens. This is really important because if you think about the school system, about how we tend to punish kids for wrongdoing, for getting into fights, for um, using profanity, for uh, truancy, just not showing up at school. We give them detention. We suspend them from school. We expel them. We're basically saying, like, you, you as a kid, as a youth, are not part of our community. You need to be banished. We're shaming them. And when we shame them, they're more likely to identify as part of the bad kids, hang out with the bad kids, and be more likely to engage in delinquent behavior. And so there's something very, very important about a society that focuses on more on trying to induce guilt and really trying hard not to shame kids. And this also happens for, for parents. You know, as I said, my daughters are all on soccer teams and two of them are at elite levels. Man, soccer parents. Whew. <laughs> there's, um, There's this one dad I call the whistler. Um, he sits as close as possible. You don't have to know anything about soccer in this story. Um, as close as possible to the line. Now, these girls are 13. They've been playing soccer for years. They're at the point where let's let them go and they have to develop their vision about the field, what's happening. The last they need is a dad or mom uh, on the sideline telling them what to do. They've got coaches. They're being trained. That's why we pay the big bucks. This dad sits on the very edge of the line of the field and he whistles and, and he can whistle it like 80 decibels, Like it's freaking loud. Like every time <laughs> he does it, like blood, this blood drips out, this drips ever so slowly out of my ears and pulls all these kids. I'm like, what's the what's off the field to look at him? And he looks at his daughter who's 13. I want to keep this in your head. She's five foot three. And and he looks at her and puts his hands up and says, why aren't you running? And he does this multiple times per game. He's basically, he's shaming his daughter over and over again, like as if his daughter needs to know, Oh, so, thanks, dad. I forgot to run in this game <laughs> of soccer. Thank you for pulling me off the field to look at you to run. But I see her, like I, like my fingers just slowly like crunch up into fists because I see the panic in her face. And I think to myself, you are so oblivious. Not only are you making her perform worse on the field, not only are you having her have a panic attack, but my guess is this daughter talks smack about you all the time when you're not there. And you think this is like a healthy father engaged in her sport. And I, you know, and I actually, and I, I, I was deciding whether to confront him or not, but actually he, I can see from his facial expressions, like he kind of knows that he doesn't want to get any feedback. So I just, even though I know snitches get stitches, um, I, I kind of just emailed the coach and said, listen, one of your players is kind of being, um, uh, facing a, a pretty difficult conflict here. Uh, hopefully you can intervene with this, but that's, mm. it's shaming. You're shaming your kid of like, you're not good enough. My love is conditional, you know, and, and that daughter is being is being given a schematic that to to win the love of other people, I must go even harder and faster and be more perfect. And I thought I was, and I was going as hard as I could, but it's not enough for my dad. Mm-hmm. So to develop that conditional love, Man, I fear for when she enters her first romantic relationship. I fear for when mm. she's an intern working for a company. I fear that she's gonna be working a hundred hours a week and never feeling that she can ever fully satisfy mm. another person. And I say this because like let's try not to be the hypocrite myself or anyone else to 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 not be that parent on the athletic field, the classroom, or any environment that our kids are in.
0: Yeah. And how often do you hear like adults, they have this internal conflict. Oftentimes, it relates back to their childhood. I mean, I always say being a parent is the most important job or role you'll have because it affects a human being from the, it follows them. It's, it creates their foundation.
1: Yeah, we're, we're leaving personality residue with what we're doing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they are, patterns are forming in terms of, what you can expect from people, how I have to behave with people, and how do I satisfy my needs to belong, my needs to be loved, my needs, my capacity to be loved? Um, we're training them on this. Mm-hmm. We might not be doing it directly, but that's what we're doing. They are de- they are developing an idea of who they are in relation to other people and how other people can be expected to behave and. I want every parent to train their kid to seek out partners that are going to treat them with dignity and respect and terminate relationships where they are treated with the opposite.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. um, I want to make sure I get more of these questions in. So let's talk about the third one, uh, another dreaded emotion, anxiety. It's a big one. Mothers I talk to, it's crazy. Anxiety, even for kids, it's on the rise and it's insane. But you say that anxiety can also be better than positivity in some way. So please tell us how can maybe a certain level of anxiety be positive?
1: Everything you're describing is true. So again, we're going to hold a multiple things simultaneously. Um, there is uh, epic proportions of anxiety occurring in society, um, particularly since, since around 2009. There's been an uptick in, um, in boys and girls, particularly girls. You're seeing an influx of uh, excess, excessive anxiety. Once it is excessive, once it's uncontrollable, once it's chronic, we're entering a territory where it's not working well for you. So let's kind of be clear about that. Like there are anxiety disorders mm-hmm. um, that are you know that involve you know excessive persistence um, and interfering with life domains. Mm-hmm. So what I'm talking about is um, in the moment, anxiety tends to be quite a useful emotional experience, and we'll even include the the more extreme variant of fear. And these are things that you know we don't you know we don't we don't, we don't like this, but this is exactly what's useful. Maya Tamir, she's a researcher in Israel who studies emotions, and she's done a lot of work of showing is that if you're involved in a situation that involves avoiding, your goal is to avoid errors. Your goal is to avoid threats. Think of um, people who work in an air traffic control tower, and the, and the goal is simple. Uh, try not to have two planes smash into each other. <laughs> try to make sure that a plane lands well. You're trying to avoid threats. You're talking about people in the military. Right. You know, the goal is to figure out um, let's avoid collateral damage and not shoot or harm them and make sure um, it's the enemy um, and separate. Be careful of separating those two. You know, if you talk, even if you're playing a video game, you know, there's things that you're supposed to avoid and there are things that you're supposed to get to get, you know, points, coins or whatever the system happens to be in what you're playing here. There's some cool research by um, some Israeli researchers that show. When people are anxious, they've got a superpower at the moment. They're sentinel. These are the people that are in the watchtower that are seeing, you know, what's potentially gonna go wrong before everyone else. So they did a cool study where they had research participants working on a video game program and then there was a huge virus that, that they ended up setting off on the computer. And it was it was affecting the entire in their mind, entire computer system in the building. And so they were basically told, listen, you gotta go do something about this. And so they were told where the IT computer headquarters were in the building. They set up like four obstacles in their way. There was somebody who dropped a stack of papers. Do you go help them and put it all together? Um, The person that they went to, it said that they were out of the office and it gave them a new address. Um, so there are a whole bunch of obstacles they put in their way and an elevator that wasn't working, you know, all sorts of stuff in their way. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that people that had this activated um, security system of anxiety and fear of worrying how they're going to perform, they did better and went through all these obstacles to figure out, to, to get to the person who could solve the problem. I want to break this down of like, wh- how is anxiety a superpower in a situation? A threat is looming. And this is what happens when you're anxious. The first thing is, when you're anxious, you're, you're hypervigilant. You are aware that you're in an unfamiliar situation and that something can go wrong. You have a larger field of vision of what could possibly go wrong. When you're anxious, you're startled quickly. You recognize that they're, when they're accused that something bad is happening, an unusual sound, um, smoke in the room. So you're scared. The first thing they do is, with this anxiety, they want to tell someone. They share this. They want to warn other people about there's looming danger. There's a guttural desire to kind of get out of their own head and tell other people something wrong I think is happening here. Now, when those people don't listen to them, this is when anxiety gets particularly useful. They scout and they they sit there looking for how can I persuade people that what I'm saying is, is not false, is not wrong, but there's actually danger coming on the horizon here. You know, this is the Paul Revere kind of model of anxiety It's like, you are figuring out what, what are the things I can do to convince you from evidence, from anecdotes, from what I've seen, that's going to make you believe that it's not in my head, there's something real here. And if they can't persuade people, anxious people squat and sit down in that situation and they perseverate until they can figure out how to remove or ameliorate the danger. So they're scaring, they're startling, they're sharing, they're scouting for ways to persuade, and they're squatting and perseverating to figure out, I'm not going to do anything else till this problem is solved. If you're in a jam, in a rut, if there's a threatening force or situation that's happening, you want an anxious person on your work team. You want an anxious person in your household. You want to know if like, basically, if your refrigerator Is leaking like you know disgusting toxins or um, about to go on the fritz? You want someone to notice this before um, it ends up crapping out. So this anxiety is a is a really useful emotion to make sure that something worse doesn't happen because you recognize the early cues.
0: Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that married people or um, partnerships that there often there is one that is more anxious than the other. So it kind of balances out uh, your your theory on on one person in the household.
1: <laughs> well, think about you know this is the land of COVID. My wife is much more sensitive to making sure that um, you know that. Everyone washes their hands for 20 30 seconds. I, I, if I had to guess and study this, my guess is people are down back down to five seconds for washing their hands. <laughs> my wife is still at 20 30 seconds makes us, makes us all do it this way. Mm-hmm. Now is it annoying? Absolutely. Do we do it because we don't want unnecessary drama in our house? Definitely you know. Um, happy wife, happy life. so um, so, so, we're, so we're doing it. So her anxiety, is probably one of the reasons why no one in our household has covid if i mean uh, among other things, she makes mm-hmm. sure we all have a mask in our bikes in our cars in our pockets um that happens there so we're we're not forgetting that that's mm-hmm. and, and I think we do not appreciate these sentinels because they're also annoying
0: yeah, let's just say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to share something else because this made me think of, I mean, last week, uh, and it's going to link back to one of the last questions I have for something else in your book. But so my partner started meditating a couple of weeks ago, because we all know meditating and you know being mindful is great. So He's like, okay, we'll do it. And so he's been doing it before going to work. And on two specific days, I noticed he wasn't doing it. And I'm like, oh, did you forget to meditate before leaving? And he's like, no, I'm purposely skipping out on meditating today and tomorrow because I need my anxiety to, to accomplish and solve this specific problem at work that I can't figure out. And if I meditate, I'm more calm. I want to get this done. I'm like, that's weird. Like, don't be ridiculous. But after rereading your book and you kind of said something similar and I'm like, okay, now I get it. Having some anxiety gets things done more quickly than if you're in that calm and peaceful state.
1: I mean, you have an emotionally intelligent partner. I mean, that's all I got to say. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is you know, I, I don't hang out with many people like your partner. So
0: I even told him this morning, I have to tell you that everything you've told me over the years, I've read it in a book. Um, But yeah, it's so funny.
1: I really like that because a lot of people view mindfulness as the, you know, we have a chapter in our book about, you know, the benefits of mindlessness. Um, Yes. But there's an important thing here because we kind of think it's the panacea to life's ills. And, And you're right. You know, if everyone who's involved in this, what I call, you know, civil rights revolution redux right now, you know fighting for uh, racial equality is the last thing you want any of them to do is meditate i mean right now i mean the thing is y- these are difficult conversations we're having these are difficult things mm-hmm. we're, that that we're reckoning with right now and uh we don't want to be calm we want to and we want to be able to have respectful exchanges where we're able to listen and be present and not focus on what we're going to say next or how we're going to defend ourselves we have to be charitable towards other people in terms mm-hmm. of what they say but it doesn't have to be being calm is independent of all that and i would actually say it would get in the way so mm-hmm. i think this is you know fits with the idea of We don't want mindfulness all the time and you can't be mindful all the time and you don't want to.
0: Like you say, um, there's scientific research that suggests that mindlessness can help you become more productive, creative, better able to handle the hassles and ambiguous terrains of daily life. But I hear and I know and I speak with people that are all about being mindful, um, meditating daily, which is great they talk about being mindful and you you think you have to be mindful all the time. You talk about, we can't, it, you can't do that. It's physically draining and impossible. You have to be mindless and have automatic responses. What's your view on all this mindfulness? I don't want to say trend, but the rise of mindfulness and you think at a certain level is getting to be too much or too emphasized. What's your take on that?
1: Um, I mean, I have a pretty nuanced view about it. I mean, I I think in general, people um, think have are too physiologically aroused and it's not necessarily their fault. I think we have a a very dense population of people. Our brains are not designed to have this many people around us um, on a regular basis. And when I say around us, I mean, physically having hundreds of people in your community and then online, the idea of, thousands of people are commenting on things that you say our brains are not designed to take in that much feedback and we can't our brains treat all criticism as if it's people are standing on our front porch um knocking on our door saying like listen no you're wrong like no your views are wrong like no you're not intelligent um no you're misinformed i mean our brains take this in a very a personal basis. So um, we benefit from strategies to physiologically soothe ourselves and be in a place where there is white space, where we're not taking in data. We're not responding to the world. We're just being with this, you know, this physical body and this, this consciousness that we have that that is this thing we call the self. So there's definitely benefit for that. Now, in terms of in the moment, People listening know this. Some of the best interactions are not mindful. They're super fast volleys of exchanges where you're connecting with someone. I mean, just this conversation right here. You know, we're just, you're telling a story about your partner. I'm like listening and kind of like responding kind of real quickly. I have like, I have like, it, it just sets off a, a pinball wizard set of ideas in my head that I would kind of want to share. And then you're responding to that. I wouldn't call it mindful. I would call it as this, like this, you know, your farmland Lego set mixing with my astronaut moon Lego set and bizarre combinations are forming rapidly between them. And it's really kind of like almost an impulsive, exciting, energetic interaction. Mm -hmm. And I could be, I might be mindful afterwards to be like, oh man, that was like a fun inter interview and conversation that happened there. But I wouldn't say, um, I'm fully mindful here. I'd Mm -hmm. say is, um, I'm attentive, but that's not mindfulness per se, because I haven't removed my ego from this situation. I actually want full access to my, my brain and all the mental files of studies and stories and things about my life that might be relevant here. And yet at the same time, I'm kind of reacting, which is not mindful, like very quickly to kind of to things you're saying. And this is an amazing exchange. So some exchanges are fun that are mindful, and some are fun that are impulsive and energetic, and some are fun that are completely automated, Mm -hmm. right? In terms of like uh, we are enacting roles because we want to efficiently get things done because there are things we want to get to later. You know, there are many phone calls and Zoom calls that – I'm on, you're on and other people listening are on where, listen, let's just get down to it. Let's be robots, complete this thing, get the hell off, do the work. And I'm going to go watch some, you know, some episodes about uh, documentaries about octopuses with my kids (laughs) later.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love that. So I just want to quote another thing you said at the end of the book that by understanding and distinguishing negative emotions, we transform them and detoxify our mind and our body. So after all this is said and done for that woman listening, what can be the takeaways you can leave us with like to remember about our darker emotions or labeling them as such?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one important thing, um, just to kind of just hit a few, one is um, recognize that we have this full multifaceted personality based on our life history. And we should pay very careful attention to the cues of what is the best motive? What is the best mindset to bring into the exact situation we're in? And do do not prematurely rule out parts of your personality. So that's one is that real contextual or even better situational awareness. The second one is being able to carefully describe our personality behaviors, how we're behaving like, all right, you know, listen, um, you know, I am engaging in narcissistic behavior right now. Like I am focused on sculpting my body because I have these amazing donuts with strawberry frosted coating and rainbow sprinkles and I want them later and I want a glass <laughs> of whiskey and I am going to focus on like sculpting my body because I would like to break even at the end of today. There's nothing <laughs> problem with having narcissistic moments during your day if it's the idea is like you're trying to achieve your own personal definition of greatness. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that, right? Self-care involves some level of narcissism. So part of that is a carefully labeling your behaviors and kind of, and being okay with some of these behaviors that have negative connotations. And then in terms of your emotions, the better you're able to precisely describe the negative emotions you're experiencing in a moment, the more able, you're able to see what you're being motivated to do. And you're able to either go in that same direction or change courses. The more I can label exactly what I'm feeling, the more I can figure out, okay, embarrassment's going to motivate me to try to save face. Anxiety is motivating this is a potentially dangerous situation, so I should be careful not to be too defensive in my responses. Uh, The worry is reminding me is that um, there's a problem here and and that I should think of um, there's probably a solution to be considering. And if I was feeling angry, it would remind me of, um, you know, maybe there are some boundaries that are being pushed here. Maybe one of the ways of responding is not responding at all because I'm a little bit bent out of shape right now. If I just say I'm upset or I'm stressed or I'm feeling bad, I don't have the access to that information that the, the discrete specific emotions have. And so I will be less likely to carefully regulate my behavior to get the best possible outcome if you were to pull that um, that tough question.
0: So where can listeners find more about you? You have tons of research and amazing articles online, uh, your books. Give us all the details.
1: Um, thank you for the self-promotion. Um, <laughs> of course. It's pretty easy. It's just my name.com and all of my scientific articles you can download for free. So um, it's just toddkashdan.com, T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H-D-A-N.com. There's links to all the books. um, And when the new one pops out, it'll just pop up there, just right next to the other four.
0: And the last question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a parent is a rollercoaster of emotions and experiences, keeping motherhood inspired for the mothers listening. What one thing have you found kept you inspired and en- energized throughout your parenting journey?
1: Oh my God. Dude, just one? Geez. Um, well, I- I'll say this is that I go out of my way to wake up early because in the morning, my kids, they've got their dream space and they're a little wacky and their brains are still kind of like uh, thinking about strange things. Because when you, when you sleep, you know, like all these ideas collide together. They're what they think about, how they think about themselves in the world. So I love to be there every single morning to kind of just... And I, and what I do is I like to share one thing in the news and get their reactions because listening to kids reactions is the best about things going on in the news. My eight-year-old on my Twitter account, we, uh, we live tweeted her reactions to the first presidential election and they're freaking hilarious because through the, through the prison of an eight-year-old, she was having a field day. And then at nighttime, I love my girls, all three of my girls still want me to tuck them in and just laying in bed with them. And they have different personalities and. Um, having them kind of whatever stories pop in their head, I do a lot of listening and very little talking. Yeah, just cherish cherish the beginnings and the ends of the days in a room with your kids because um, it's we're, we're on borrowed time.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love Keeping Motherhood Inspired Podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guest's or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast. This will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.
1: Bye, guys.